0: Hi, everyone. This is Tracy Fenton, founder of World Blue and the World Blue Academy, and welcome to the Freedom at Work podcast. I'm here to teach you how to think with a freedom-centered mindset, thrive as a freedom-centered leader, and finally, how to build a freedom-centered culture for your team or workplace. This podcast is about answering one key question. How can you, as a leader, use freedom rather than fear to unleash the full potential of individuals, teams, and organizations in order to achieve breakthrough results and change the world for the better? If you want to explore the answers, then you're in the right place. Let's get started. Hi everyone, this is Tracy Fenton, founder of World Blue, and it's great to be with you today. Today we're exploring Freedom at work with one of the top leadership thinkers in the world, Dr. Rosabeth Moss Cantor. Dr. Cantor holds the Ernest L. Arbuckle Professorship at Harvard Business School, specializing in strategy, innovation, and leadership for change. Her strategic and practical insights guide leaders worldwide through teaching, writing, and direct consultation to major corporations, CEOs, governments, and startup ventures. Rosabeth co-founded the Harvard University-wide Advanced Leadership Initiative, a growing international model for a new stage of higher education, preparing successful top leaders to apply their skills to national and global challenges. The former chief editor of Harvard Business Review, Rosabeth has been repeatedly named to lists such as the 50 most powerful women in the world and the 50 most influential business thinkers in the world. She recently received the Thinker's 50 Lifetime Achievement Award. She is the author or co-author of 20 books. Her latest book, just published in January 2020, is called Think Outside the Building, How Advanced Leaders Can Change the World, One Smart Innovation at a Time. Rosabeth, it's a delight to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. I want to begin by diving in to your latest book, Think Outside the Building, which I've got sitting right here next to me at my desk. Now, what inspired you? You've written 20 books. What inspired you to write this book on this particular topic of innovation?
1: We live in times that provide much opportunity, but also many problems to solve, and I think the only way we're gonna solve the problems is by mobilizing as many people as possible to think about creating innovations, scaling innovations, joining with one another to create campaigns for change. But the situation in many cases is urgent and we'd better get with it. Of the three biggest problems that millennials all over the world identify, number one is climate change. That's why I'm not getting better without lots of people doing many things. They also identify war and conflicts and inequities, gender, race, inequalities of other kinds, income inequality, etc. That's what the millennials care about. Many other problems also, and including pandemics, including diseases. And we have known about many of these problems for 50 years or more, and yet, have not made sufficient progress. So it's time now that we mobilize more people to think creatively about solving the problems. I think one reason they're not solved is narrow thinking enclosed in our circles in which people who are in establishment institutions talk only to one another and shut out opportunities for new kinds of thinking. Hence think outside the building, outside the structures that exist today. Use your creativity to look at ideas for
0: change. I love that. You know, what? as we're talking about thinking outside the building, one of the things that comes up for me is fear and how fear keeps us from doing that. That's something we talk a lot about at World Blue is how can we shift our thinking from fear to freedom and possibility. So what do you think is a fear that keeps people from mobilizing to solve these problems, that keeps people from thinking outside the building?
1: Well, sometimes it's fear. Sometimes it's simply comfort. And the stories that we tell ourselves or the dominant narratives that people in power tell about how things came to be this way, how they are inevitable, and they'll never change. And so many people think that the status quo is all there is. And if there's any element of fear, it's because of the unknown, of uncertainty. And so then it's easier to stick with the status quo, which you know it's comfortable, than venture out to do anything different. Innovation of any kind, whether it's product innovation, whether it's inventing the iPhone, or inventing an Uber ride-hailing service, or... A new method of care in a hospital. Innovation takes courage because it's different. And things that are different require a little bit of selling and a little bit of understanding before people will automatically embrace them.
0: Absolutely. What is one of your favorite stories or examples from the book that can inspire our listeners as they think about how to mobilize?
1: Well, I have several stories, so I'm going to tell you two. One is somebody who is taking on the impossible because we have this familiar saying, you can't boil the ocean, you know, meaning something (laughs) that's so big, it's so daunting, you couldn't possibly do it. And I tell the story of a guy who really cares about the oceans, a banker, and he decided he would boil the ocean or actually stop it from boiling because that's such a big factor in climate change. And he had an idea. He said one thing that was missing from discussion of, in particular, the oceans is adding new technology that could improve ocean health, whether it's sensors, better methods of shipping, saving fish stocks. New technology, but there was no way to finance it because the oceans have no sovereignty. No country owns the oceans, mm. they literally spill over. And so he thought there ought to be a World Bank for Oceans. Well, that in itself is a pretty big idea. Mm -hmm. But what he did was he started persuading people by going to lots and lots of international meetings, listening to them, and then finally, after listening and helping, telling him about his point of view. So he had to do this all through persuasion, not position, There was no hierarchy here. It was because he built trust and was believable that he is now getting traction and he has helped shift the conversation. So that's a really big one. Then I I have somebody who has built a new way of distributing food in the inner city to people who are hungry. He's the former president of Trader Joe's. He has a new retail concept where he also put together very unusual ideas. And in the beginning, many of his friends said, you're crazy. You've been at Trader Joe's. Everyone loves it. You have a great reputation. Why would you get in to this new area? But he has. He is taking food that is perfectly healthy and nutritious, but would otherwise be thrown out because it's surplus or close to its sell-by date. And he has created retail stores that is selling it to people in food deserts and inner cities at very affordable prices. So he's solving two problems at once, climate change, because food waste contributes methane gas, which is worse for the environment than carbon. And he's also helping feed people who otherwise couldn't afford a healthy diet. So I just love it because it's incredibly yeah. creative and all the pieces existed. I call this kaleidoscope thinking. It's like shaking a kaleidoscope. All the pieces exist, but when you shake it, you get a totally different pattern.
0: Absolutely. That gets you thinking in a very different way. It's like all those elements are there. Let's just shake it up and see, gosh, there's a whole different type of approach that we can take to solving these big problems. Problems. Now, you know, here at World Blue, we teach what's called freedom at work. It's the model that I developed. It has three elements to it. Our listeners will know this the three elements of freedom at work, kind of like a three-legged stool, our mindset. Leadership and organizational design. And I'd love to pick your brain sort of in these three areas, Rosabeth. So, starting off with mindset, you know, thinking about your recent book, but also your other books and the incredible work that you've done at Harvard, what do you think is the role of a leader's mindset on the overall success of her company?
1: So, I've always believed in empowerment. And leaders need to believe that their people have something to contribute and they need to trust them and they also need to believe that people are capable and responsible if you give them a chance and you know sometimes the negatives outweigh the positives negatives are so powerful we have to get away from a mindset of negativity of being skeptical, because there are occasionally people who will abuse that trust, but Mm -hmm. not many. Mm -hmm. And in the best companies I see, they totally believe in giving people voice because people will have something to contribute. They believe that at the top of an organization, there are smart people, but they can't possibly do it all themselves. It's like changing laws, Passing a law or a Supreme Court decision in the United States, just because you pass a law doesn't mean the behavior changes. And if you're the CEO, just because you say, we have to move to another area of business, it may not change. People are slow to move. If they don't trust you, if they don't see the value, of that dream, they have lots of ways to slow it down. For years and years and years, I've been writing about resistance to change and all the power that people at the lowest levels have to stop you. Veto power. They just don't show up at meetings. And so instead of calling a meeting and it's all done in a week, it takes six weeks or eight weeks just to assemble all the people you need. I'm sure that your listeners will resonate with that, that if people are not excited and enthusiastic and feel that they're part of the process, they won't help you get something done.
0: That's exactly right. They can veto with their feet. They can veto with their mental energy. (laughs) You know, they can veto in many, many ways. And that really slows things down. And it slows down that productivity and that efficiency and that ability to innovate and think in different ways. And so when you were working on your most recent book, Think Outside the Building, did you notice a mindset difference between the leaders who could think outside the building and those who couldn't?
1: So I've said it takes courage Mm. and it's often not inside the person. It's often in what surrounds them. So people who are successful can sometimes become narrowed by their own success. That is, they start talking to other people who agree with them. They get into exclusive clubs Mm -hmm. where everybody dresses the same and reinforces the way they think, their ideologies, their politics, their social preferences, and also people can get accustomed to having an army of helpers to do everything with them so they don't necessarily have to learn new things themselves. So there are a number of things that happen to successful people that I love success. I think it's very positive. But they often have to get out of the building, in, in essence. Yeah. They have to be with new and different kinds of people in order to have their thinking stimulated in new directions. The new CEO of Verizon, Hans Vestberg, and I'm very proud that Hans Vestberg is one of the people who endorse Think Outside the Building. Hans Vestberg tells his top executives, I want you to do one thing every week that's new and different something you've never done before, some place you've never been before, because that will open minds. And so in the book, I spend a lot of time on how to open your mind, how to wander far afield, how to have new and different kinds of experiences, and then put them together to have innovative thoughts or to enable other people to have those thoughts.
0: I love that. And for our leaders who are listening, many who are CEOs and running small businesses, what's one tip you would give them to help open their mind even more?
1: Well, so first of all, small businesses, there are several kinds of small businesses. There are businesses that start small but want to get big, often tech businesses. There are also businesses that are lifestyle businesses that start small and are content to go along at a leisurely pace and enjoy life. So depending on what the aspiration is, that makes a difference. I think that everybody though has to move with the times. Mm -hmm. It's hard to be, for example, a small lifestyle business that doesn't change a lot if there's a lot of competition and change all around you. One of the inspiring stories of our time is how independent bookstores And by the way, I hope people listening will buy my book from their local independent bookstore because they have competed very effectively against Amazon. I also love Amazon, but they have managed to stay alive because they have innovated. They have become important anchors of the community. They create events. They have coffee shops. They have knowledgeable staff who can recommend books. And on my book tour, I've been in a number of them, and it's quite astonishing. On a Saturday afternoon in Washington, D.C., politics and prose was mobbed. People were there with their families. People were browsing. People had big piles of books to buy. And this was an industry that was supposed to be dead. So by being innovative, by connecting with the community, by thinking about offering people something extra, It's possible to stay alive and flourish. And that's what I mean by thinking outside the building, thinking outside the existing structure. It does not have to be exactly the way it's always been. You can open up the structure and be very successful.
0: I love that. I lived in Washington for about 10 years and was always at Politics and Prose. And so have heard many wonderful authors such as yourself speak there. And it is a great example of how local bookstores do create that incredible sense of community and connection and insight. So yes, I agree with you. I hope our listeners will get your book at their local bookstore. So thanks for pointing that out. Well,
1: thank you. And you know, there's a number of other examples of creating events around a store. So I love the independent bookstores, having author events and so forth. But I have some other examples. For example, women can now get a mammogram at Nordstrom's when they go shopping. I keep thinking lots of neighborhood retailers ought to be able to offer some health services right there. Just mm-hmm. as CVS, that C with a V, S is offering minute clinics in their stores. Walmart is now offering health checkups in their stores. So Walmart and CVS are giants. Mm-hmm. but And Nordstrom too, but local, locally, think about what you could do. In Louisiana, there's a project called Hair and Health for African-American men who are underserved by the health system and don't really trust the formal hospital system in their community. And so this project is training barbers to take blood pressure readings and also collect some other health data and then pass it on to health partners, refer people, but imagine that. Mm. In the barbershop, while getting a haircut, you can be taking care of your health. And that's a kind of imaginative outside the building thinking that we need more of
0: today. It absolutely is. Those are such great examples of how just bringing that different mindset and thinking in a more innovative way allows us to connect dots and connect those kaleidoscopic dots in a way that we haven't before. I love that. I love that. Now, I want to hear your thoughts, get a little bit more deep into leadership, Here at World Blue, we teach what we call freedom-centered versus fear-based leadership. And as you know, it's an interesting time in our world right now. As we're doing this interview, we've got the spread of the coronavirus going on. And just prior to our interview, you were in a meeting there at Harvard about how the university would deal with this situation. And I know many businesses, including our clients, I've been talking with them every day here, are trying to think about how they're going to handle the situation regarding the coronavirus. And I just tweeted today, I just tweeted this out. I said, real leaders understand that fear is a form of mass mesmerism that makes us myopic. Leadership is about helping others be smart, but not scared." And I wondered, Rosabeth, what advice would you have for leaders during times of extreme fear, like what we are experiencing right now with the coronavirus?
1: Well, first of all, I'm glad that you're tweeting such good advice. I also tweeted yesterday one of my favorite pieces of advice at times of uncertainty, which could be true because of a crisis like coronavirus. It could be true because of mergers, acquisitions a closing of a facility in a community, lots of reasons for uncertainty. And I believe that when there's uncertainty of outcomes where you don't know exactly what's gonna happen, you need certainty of process. You need to make clear to people when you're gonna communicate, how you're gonna communicate on a regular basis so they can expect it. At my school, Harvard Business School, part of Harvard University, we are making a lot of contingency plans, including after spring break, moving all our classes online, which is a wrenching change. But it means that we can keep people safe. And our officials are being really great at saying three to four every day, expect a message. Mm-hmm. And we just did one of the messages on Zoom. That, think about that. If you're really uncertain, at least knowing when you're going to get more information really helps. Sometimes leaders, poor leaders, make the mistake of believing they have to have all the answers. You don't need all the answers. You ought to be able to say the three little words that leaders have the hardest time saying, Mm -hmm. which is not, I love you. (laughs) The hardest three words to say is, I don't know. Yeah, You think you're a leader because you know more than other people. So what you have to do is you have to say, I may not have the answers, but I'll tell you when we will keep you updated, when we will give you information. So that's one big thing. I think the other thing we can do is use the same skills in innovation and creativity and create new ways people can connect. I think we need to make sure that everybody in an organization or a community has some role in checking in with other people and seeing how they are. So you like democracy, we could democratize the process of making sure people are okay. So I think we could do so many things to help people feel more comfortable, more cared about, more cared for. I think our biggest enemy right now the virus certainly, and keeping it contained. The other big enemy is social isolation Mm. because people need people. I end the last line of my book, which is actually the acknowledgements And Think Outside the Building. Mm -hmm. I say one of my favorite expressions is an African expression. It's Ubuntu. Ubuntu means I am because you are. I exist because you exist, because we are social creatures. So leaders need to acknowledge that. It's in a losing streak. When things are going downhill, leaders try to hoard information. In a winning streak, I found in another piece of work, in a winning streak, whether a sports team or a business, leaders spread information and make sure everybody has the
0: facts. I love that you brought out Ubuntu because... That's actually one of the three leadership attributes that we teach at World Blue. And I, when I went to South Africa back in 2004 was the first time that I learned about Umbutu. And it's a, such an important point that you're making about the social isolation. Umbutu is such the antidote to that, to understanding that interconnection and how much we need each other. And I find that to be particularly interesting about the coronavirus is here at a time when loneliness is on the the rise and that sense of social isolation is on the rise around the world particularly in the west that here comes this you know virus that's just seeming to try to isolate us even more you know and how can we Rise above that. We're not supposed to hug each other. We're not supposed to, I'm a big hugger, you know, we're not supposed to hug each other. We're not supposed to shake each other's hands. And yes, of course, I understand the science and everything behind that. But I just find it interesting that this is coming up at a time when I think human beings, as human beings, we are longing for that deeper sense of connection, that deeper sense of umbutu, if you will. What do you think? Yeah.
1: So, first of all, I think that hugging is great, but I think the way people Are now responding to the fact that you should touch elbows or bow or wave is with such good cheer and humor
0: that
1: you feel just as embraced and just as warm and connected. It isn't only touching, physical touching, it's also a sense that you're cared about and acknowledged as a person. I think we can use technology to do some of that. I think that's also a way to get over being depressed. When people are depressed and they withdraw into themselves, they essentially go inside their own building, pull the shades, lock the doors and shut everybody out. And my outside the building metaphor is a really good metaphor because when feeling a little down and blue, the other kind of blue, one should (laughs) reach out. And there's always somebody that has something going on in their life that would appreciate just getting an email. And then immediately the person who sends the email feels better because there is something about giving to somebody else before you get for yourself that's extremely uplifting. And while I am an expert on business strategy, on changing the world, changing institutions, big change, I also know a lot about psychology and social psychology because we don't get big change unless we also pay attention to the human touches. And I think at this time of also political instability, I'll bet that ultimately voters vote for the candidate that makes them feel most understood as people and who gathers people in to the circle rather than excluding them.
0: That's the umbutu, isn't it? It's that sense of embrace and bringing people in. And isn't that what great leadership is about? Isn't that what advanced leadership is about? And I love your point about think outside the building isn't just an actual physical building. It's the building in our own mind sometimes, like you were talking about. We draw the shades and we don't go out. We don't reach out. And so during times like right now in all times, how can we give a little bit more? How can we reach out a little bit more? How can we embrace even more? And so I love taking that wonderful metaphor of yours for the book on an even bigger level and thinking how we can practice it individually.
1: Yes. Structures. I mean, the building, just established structures, established Mm -hmm. routines. Mm -hmm. That's what I mean. The happiest people I know are people who are often working on the most difficult problems because they feel they can do something. What people need is a sense of efficacy. And that's what leadership is all about the feeling that I can take action, I can make something happen, I can energize and engage other people, I can have a big, bold dream, I can make it happen, I can create a network of people who agree. And together, all those conversations, they can start having impact. One of my favorite stories in the book is about the beginning of the Designated Driver campaign, which Mm -hmm. has saved millions of lives that would otherwise have been lost due to drunk driving. And this was a very simple idea. And it actually originated in Scandinavia, but it got very big in the U.S., And it says, for every party, every bar, there's a new social role. One person is the designated driver who has responsibility for keeping everybody safe. It was such a powerful message because it did not say don't drink. I mean, there were criticisms because it didn't say don't drink. What it said was, have a responsible person. And, you know, teenagers really took hold because... That made them feel important. I'm the leader here. I have a responsible role. And by partnering with media companies to spread the idea and have television programs show a designated driver, he changed the conversation, Jay Winston. He got people thinking that this role has to be occurring anytime people are drinking. And That's powerful. That changes a lot of people's behavior. They didn't change the law, they changed the culture.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. I love that. And I can really identify with what you're saying with people who want to take on big problems because they have a big dream and they want to make an impact. You know, when I founded World Blue back in 1997, I founded it because I believed that we could use the way we run our companies as a way to advance freedom and democracy in the world. And going into kind of the third attribute of the freedom at work model, which is organizational design, I wanted to get your thoughts about this. Do you think that we can look at running our companies in a more decentralized, distributed leadership, you know, in our words, we would say organizational democracy, running our organizations in this way to help advance freedom and democracy in the world? We're in a 14-year global decline, according to Freedom House, of the level of freedom and democracy in the world. Is there a place for business in the way we conduct ourselves in our workplaces to help advance freedom and democracy in the world? I'd love to hear your thoughts on that.
1: Well, we do know that engagement at work is going down, Mm -hmm. that a large number of employees on surveys don't appear to be very engaged in their work. That's right. And some of that is that they don't have sufficient autonomy or they're not listened to. But I actually feel that the missing ingredient is the one I write about and Think Outside the Building. The missing ingredient is a sense of purpose and meaning. Yes. And if we imbue work with purpose and meaning because people feel that their tasks are adding up to a bigger form of social impact, then they are more engaged. And then it's less important. Is somebody issuing orders? Do I have complete freedom? What becomes important is the goal that I'm going to make a difference in the world. And I think it's possible to give that sense to people at every level in organizations. It's certainly important at the top for top executives. That's what keeps people motivated. That's what keeps people engaged in activities that can sometimes be kind of boring. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, you're an accountant, but you also feel you belong to a place that stands for something. And I think that's the importance of think outside the building to cultivate a sense of purpose and meaning.
0: Absolutely. You know, one of the 10 principles of organizational democracy that I found in my research is purpose and vision. You know, having that sense of individual as well as collective purpose and meaning. And uh, we have a whole course called Fearless Purpose that helps people find their purpose and vision for their life and then align what their purpose and vision is for their life with the work that they do so that they can then, you know, go on and do these extraordinary things like what you've been telling us about with these outstanding examples that are in your wonderful book. Let me hopefully not put you on the spot too much, but let me ask you, what do you feel is your sense of purpose?
1: Well, my own sense of purpose is what I'm doing right now. It's spreading the message that we all need to think about in our own way in our own corner of the world how to add a strong sense of purpose or reinforce a strong sense of purpose and social impact because we only have one planet, one world, one life, and we need to make it meaningful. And I also believe in successful businesses. I believe that it's possible to marry making a profit with having a strong sense of purpose, and that's my current mission. So thank you
0: very much for this great opportunity to talk with you. Well, amen. I agree with everything you just said. And thank you so much, Dr. Rosabeth Moss Cantor of Harvard Business School for being with us today. Make sure you check out her outstanding new book, Think Outside the Building, How Advanced Leaders Can Change the World One Smart Innovation at a Time. Pick it up at your local bookstore. Thank you again, Rosabeth, so much for being with us today. My pleasure. Good luck to all of you. Thank you. Thanks everyone for tuning in to today's show on freedom at work. If you like what you heard and you're interested in finding out if you're a fit to work with World Blue, here's what I invite you to do next. Head on over to worldblue.com slash call. That's world and then blue without an E, B-L-U and book an appointment to speak with our team. We'll get on the phone with you for about 45 minutes and explore how to help you develop a freedom-centered mindset thrive as a freedom-centered leader, or build a freedom-centered workplace culture. Remember, living, leading, and working in freedom rather than fear in order to unleash your full potential does not happen by itself. You need expert guidance to make it happen. We have over 20 years of experience working all over the world with top leaders and brands from small businesses to fortune 500 companies, helping them achieve results with our proven methods and courses to see if we can help you do the same, head on over to worldblue.com call and book a call with our team. Now I'm Tracy Fenton, and I can't wait to connect with you soon.